You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church, located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, Pastor John Dubois is preaching a sermon titled, The Judge, from Psalm 50. This sermon is part of Pastor John's series in the Psalms titled, Delight in the Law of the Lord. What does God need me to do? What do I need Him to do? According to Psalm 50, how we answer those two questions makes all the difference. Today's message is from Psalm 50, and the title is The Judge. The Judge of All the Earth is going to have a judgment session, and so it's an appropriate title. And uh, I wanted to share with you also that normally on this Sunday would be Communion Sunday, and so it would be great if we could be together but uh, we still can't because of the um, infection numbers and the pandemic, but um, we certainly want to be. If anyone would like to, uh, we already have a couple of microgroups meeting this week that can um, get together in groups of five or less, and we're having communion with those. And so if you'd like to be part of that, just let me know, and we can work out something for you as well. But in the meantime, we, we are celebrating the Lord Jesus who's with us in and uh, presently with us in we are in his presence we are with him all the time even if we can't meet together as his body so psalm 50 the judge psalm 50 starts out with the mighty one god the lord speaks and summons to the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets from zion perfectly in beauty god shines forth our god comes and will not be silent A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. I do not, or do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see thieves, you join in with them. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you, and I set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God. 
or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this psalm that we're going to study today. May it open our eyes to um, the relationship that we have with you, um, the relationship that is broken if we're outside of the Lord Jesus, but even more so the relationship that we have with you because of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the psalm is broken into three major stanzas, and the uh, second and third stanzas both end with basically the same idea. And so if you're taking notes with me today, uh, the first uh, section, the first stanza, is I'm titling The Mighty One Who Summons. And so that starts out at verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. This phrase, the Mighty One, God the Lord, is sort of an interesting uh, phrase, the combination of words in the Hebrew is um, El, Elohim, Yahweh. And so it's kind of unusual to see uh, God, El, some, the word El means God, so El Shaddai, the Lord provides. Um, so El is God, and then Elohim is God in the plural form to uh, magnify the multiple radiances of God's glory. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And then we use God shortly, um, like El Shaddai, God provides. But in this case, when it says El, Elohim, it's a very rare combination. And it's translated here by the NIV as the mighty one, um, God, God the mighty one. And so it emphasizes that he is God above and he is high and lifted up. There's only one other place that in my studies that I've been able to find where this particular combination of words, um, names for God is used, and it's in, uh, interestingly, in um, Judges 22.22. And it's in a section where um, Joshua is encountering and confronting the tribe of Reuben, which is on the other side of the Jordan River, and Reuben didn't help out. And the Reubenites uh, use this phrase twice. They say, El Elohim Yahweh, El Elohim Yahweh. It's almost like a, a sacred um, oath. They said, we, God, the mighty one, I'm telling you, and the witness of God, we did not intend to abandon you, our brothers, in the battle and coming and overtaking the promised land. So it's, it's a, a very rare combination. So in Psalm 50 here, God is... Um, telling us that he's the mighty one, that he is God. He is the transcendent, self-existing Yahweh, the I Am. And he speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. So from east to west, all the entire earth is summoned, is called to him. And in this summons, he summons the earth itself. And then as we'll see in a minute, he also summons the heavens. And so um, verse 2 goes on, from Zion, from uh, Jerusalem, or the heavenly city of God. Zion is the name for God's uh, city. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, and he will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. So this God is not coming in some sort of a, a safe-feeling way, but he comes with storm and thunder and lightning, almost the reminiscent of the picture of when the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. And so God's going to come forth and he's summoning all of the earth and the heaven to this great courtroom scene. 
He's the one in charge of everything. Verse 4, he summons the heavens above and the earth. And so, hey, you stars and sun and moon, you come to this. And you earth, you mountains and rivers and streams, you come to this summons because I'm going to judge my people. So he summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. And he says, gather to me this consecrated people, this people that has been set apart, this people who have been uh, set apart and called to my name, cut off uh, from the rest of the peoples of the earth, my people. And he says, these are my people who made a covenant with me, a promise with me by sacrifice. And this word for made a covenant is interesting. You need to remember, this is the word cut. And so these are the people who cut a covenant with me. And we'll talk about uh, the nature of that kind of thing. But we need to understand that this cutting is a, is a drastic, life-threatening, um, oath-type covenant. They made a covenant. They cut a covenant with me. And then he says, And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. So when God summons the earth, this one, this one God, he's making this summon. I'm telling everybody, uh, everything in heaven who even testifies to my glory and my justice and everyone on the earth and all of the things on the earth, I'm summoning. This is my courtroom. This, I'm in charge and I'm going to declare my verdict. I'm going to make my accusations and I'm going to start. And so the second stanza then, after this great summons of the Mighty One, and I just want us to make sure we understand that we're talking about God the Creator here, the one who's in his own order of reality, his self-existent state, the one who doesn't need anything, the one who is the Creator of all. And he calls this, this Mighty God. We're supposed to already get the sense of how transcendent he is. He's high and holy and above. And he's coming and he summons and he starts out with a reference to his people. He says, listen, my people, and I will speak. And so he's calling this uh, courtroom together, and he says, okay, this is my first statement, my first uh, speech. And he said, I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. So this is my testimony against you, my people. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. And so I think that there's a sigh of relief here that, that God is saying, I have no charges against you regarding the way that you sacrifice to me or that you have your, uh, the way that you deal with your burnt offerings and, and they're ever before me. And you need to understand that God had established for Israel this, this whole sacrificial system so that um, those who were uh, wicked and had violated God's law in the golden calf incident, that God would not burst out against them. And so he puts this priesthood between himself and the people to, to function as a object lesson that they need to go through certain procedures in order to reach God. And that they could not communicate or fellowship with God directly because his holiness would burst out against them. And so there's this intermediate stage, the priesthood and the holy place, and the most holy place divided by a curtain and, and that only in certain ways could you experience God. And there was burnt offerings that dealt with uh, sins, uh, whenever a sin was committed or a guilt offering. But then there were also, also offerings that were um, a voluntary after the fact. Once your relationship with God was cleared up with your guilt offerings, then you could also offer thanks offerings. And so he brings no charges against them. 
they're always before him. And it's interesting that God is satisfied by the sacrificial system that they have in place. But he says, but I he also wants them to know, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. Apparently, it's possible for those who are in the people of God to kind of get the attitude that God needs all the stuff they do. That It's a big effort for them to go through the ritualistic cleansing and to sacrifice an animal and to hold their, head, their hands on the animal while it bleeds out and they hear the noise of its uh, bleeding and crying until it dies and they, they're aware of their guilt and there's just so much of a load. And there's the impression, I would imagine, when somebody serves God in a religious way, in a in a high uh, task-oriented, fulfill the commands, do it a certain way, you know, check every box, cross every T, um, that there's this sense that God needs something. And so God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine already, right? They're all mine and all the cattle on a thousand hills. And so there's no, God isn't short. He doesn't need your sacrifices. You know, false gods need our sacrifices because otherwise their glory would dissipate. But as we've studied before, God is totally self-reliant, totally able to function. He has no need. He can only give. He can't take because he already has everything. And so he has no need. And so he says also, he said, I know every bird in the mountains. You think that I can't keep straight things. I know every bird. I know where things are at, and all the creatures of the field are mine. And look what he goes on. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. It's, it's an impossible if condition because God can never lack. He already cannot need anything. But he said, but if I were hungry, I would not tell you creatures. There's uh, no way that you and I could fulfill his hunger. And again, he says, for the world is mine and all that is in it. I'm the one who created those things. And I already own them all and I don't need anything. I've, they've poured out for me in my generous grace. I have given it. And then also he said, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Is that how I sustain myself? He said, no, I don't need those things. But look at this. He says, sacrifice, thanks offering or thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. So what I want you to do is to give me thank offerings. These are the optional ones. These are the ones that after you've already taken care of your sin and done the guilt offerings and participated in those, then you are free to worship God with a free and joyful heart. And their thank offerings or fellowship offerings. It's just a way to say to God how much we love him. And so he says, thank, thank me for things. Sacrifice Thank offerings to me and fulfill your vows to the Most High. If you've got a plan and you want to do something, you keep your word. You fulfill your vows. You fulfill your vows to me. If you tell me that you're going to turn over a new leaf, if you tell me that you're going to work uh, and do something kind for somebody, you follow up and do it. You keep your vows. And so what I'm, as, as judge of all the earth, what God is saying, I don't have a problem with your sacrifice system. You need to remember that I don't need you. I don't need anything from you. But what I want you to do is I want you to thank me and I want you to fulfill your vows. And then he says in verse 15, and call on me in the day of trouble. 
So when you're in trouble, when you have a, a pinch, when life is messing up and when you're in suffering, you need to call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And that's how you will honor me. You will honor me. So you call on me when you're in trouble. I love to give good gifts to my children. I will deliver you. And that's how you will honor me. So that's his case to his people. And I think the bottom line is that after God does this initial summing, the message to his own people is God does not need us. It's not, uh, it's important for us to understand that God is so self-existent that he cannot actually need us. If he did, he would not be God. But he is so free from want and so free from need. He's so free from lack that he can give. He gives without reducing himself. When you or I give, when I give you my money, I can measure that in my bank account because there's a loss. I have a, a reduction. It may be a great thing. I don't mean it's always a loss to give you money. I'm going to have to be careful. Maybe I should ask Becky to cut this part out of the video. Nah, never mind. The point is, is, if I were able to give you something, I could measure the reduction in my resources. Even if I was super rich, there's still a tangible reduction. But God cannot be diminished. He is so able to give because he cannot receive that he gives by his nature. It's, it's the way he is that he would cause creation to happen because it doesn't dissipate him. It doesn't diminish him. It doesn't use him up. It doesn't decrease him in any way. And nor does he create anything in order to enhance him that he needed some improvement. He's already perfectly satisfied. And so you and I need to remember that God does not need us. He lovingly and freely gives himself to us. And so his instructions to us to thank him, to keep our vows, and to call on him in the time of need are just ways that we can add to his glory. But the add to his glory is in our understanding. It's not like his glory would be diminished before or after, or if we didn't, his glory would not be diminished. He is all Gloriful. He's infinitely capable. All right. <clears throat> so that's how um, the second stanza goes. God does not need us. And the third stanza, the third and final stanza is um, starting in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says. So the second stanza was to my people. I don't have any charge against you. But look what he says to the wicked person. What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips. So I've made a, I've cut a covenant with my people. I've made a promise to them, and I've given them my laws. But if you are wicked, what right do you have to use that kind of terminology to describe or live your life? You don't have a right to use the Ten Commandments to make decisions. What you you don't have a right to say God promised this and God promised that on your lips. And look at what he says. The reason they don't is that you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you. When I tell you what to do, when I give you a command like, like thou shalt not steal, you just throw it behind you. You don't care. You, you totally hate God's instruction. Remember in our series on the Ten Commandments how we found out that when we make a graven image, what we're actually doing is we're showing God that we hate him. He takes it as hatred when we try to make him less than himself and try to represent him with some sort of a statue or some sort of a, an image or an idea in our minds. And so God says, 
that we hate his instruction and we cast his words behind us. He says, look at verse 18. When you see thieves, you join in with them. You don't follow my instructions. You don't oppose the wicked. You just join them. Or he says, you throw in your lot with adulterers. When you, when you want to hang out with friends, you go and find other people and you find people who are adulterous and betray the vows of their marriages defile their bodies with sexual immorality, and you throw in your lot with them, that's who you decide to join up with. That's who you, you see, you hate my instruction. All my instruction about whether or not you should steal, you hate it. You just throw it behind. And all my instructions about the propriety and the boundaries around sexual expression and why God gave us those gifts, you just throw them away and you cast your lot with the thieves. You cast your lot with the adulterers. And he says, you use your mouth for evil and you harness your tongue to deceit. And so you steer your, son, your tongue almost like a horse and bridle image and, and you steer your tongue to be a liar. And look at in verse 20, the especially breaking the commandment to not bear false witness. You sit in the courtroom and you testify against your brother and you slander your own mother's son. You slander a blood relative. You lie. You tell things that aren't true, and it hurts other people. You don't care about my commands at all. And then he says, but when you did these things, and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. What an interesting condemnation. God looks at these wicked people. He looks at us and our wickedness, and he's patient with us and gracious and does not bring immediate judgment. And what we do, he said, when we do these things and we see God being silent, when we, when we lie or we steal and we look and nothing happens to us, we interpret God's silence as a reflection of what he is like. And we think that he's just like us. God says, when you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. You misinterpreted. You misinterpreted my patience with you as approval. And you are really messed up. And he says, but I now arraign you. I'm now in this courtroom. I'm now going to call you out. And I'm going to set my accusations before you. This is what I'm going to say to you. And I say this, consider this, you who forget God. If you're going to cast my words behind you, if you're going to hate what I instruct, if you're going to think I'm just like you, then consider this, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue. So I'm going to come and rip you to shreds, God says, and there's not going to be anyone to rescue. And so instead of um, being like the ones who are supposed to thank God and call on him in the time of trouble, God says, you are not thanking me. You are rejecting me. You hate my words. You throw them behind you. And when the disaster comes, there isn't going to be anybody to rescue you. You're going to be lost, you who forget God, and will be torn to pieces. Wow. So God, the Mighty One, summons. And in the first stanza, we see that God does not need us. And now in this third stanza, we said, we find out that we actually need God, right? We needed God. We need God. We can't do it on our own. And when we consider, if we, if we ignore him, then all we can expect is disaster and destruction, that our lives are going to be shredded. So that's the three major stanzas of the psalm. And, 
And the, the big idea that I'm getting is that it's the mighty one who's holding this courtroom. And his first main argument is he doesn't need us. And his second main argument is we really need him. We need him. But at the end of both the second and third stanzas, after his argument against his people and his argument against the wicked, he kind of says the same things in both cases. Look at verse 14 first. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. And call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and that's how, and you will honor me. That's how you will honor me. You'll give me glory. That word for honor is the same word for glory. Kavod, the heaviness. You will give weight to me. You will, you will acknowledge the weight of how great I am. And so he tells his people, you're supposed to thank offerings, fulfill what you said you're going to do, and call on me. That's what you're supposed to do. But then look at, after he goes through the second and third stanza, after the third stanza with the wicked, he kind of says the same thing as the last verse. He says, those who sacrifice thank offerings, honor me. So if you're thanking me for things, then you're honoring me. But to those who are blameless, and this is a little bit difficult to um, some of the translations we even tell you, it's a hard to um, translate this particular phrase, but to the blameless or to those that he shows the way or to those who fulfill their vows or those who do what he's supposed to do, he will show his salvation. So when we call out to God, when we live in a way that calls out to God, he's glad to show us his salvation. And so, again, the outline for today's message is the mighty one summons. And he tells us that he does not need us. God does not need us, but that we need God. And bottom line, you're supposed to thank God Keep your vows and call on him for help. And also, I want to be sure that we look for Jesus in the song. You know, we're, we're in big trouble with God when we ignore him. And the truth is, is that's, my, that's my natural nature. I want to be my own boss. And I have to admit that, that I do hate God's destruct, uh, instruction. I throw it behind me. My natural response is to do it my way. And I also have to admit that even when I'm a, a religious person after I've accepted Jesus, I, I still get caught up in my religious duties and I sometimes get the idea that God needs us to do church and God needs us to do offerings. And it's easy to let our own acts of righteousness somehow um, seem like some sort of payment plan. And God needs to, re God takes the time to remind us that he doesn't need us. But I want to um, draw these things out a little bit more by going back and investigating a little bit more this whole idea of cutting a covenant. Remember when in verse 5 he says, Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The word made there is the word cut. As I mentioned earlier, it's the word that, that shows how God cuts a covenant. And this is perhaps best illustrated by the way that God made a covenant with Abraham. So I'm going to switch over to the Genesis account of where God just promised Abraham that he would give him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in Genesis 15, uh, Abraham says, he, the Bible tells us that Abraham believed the Lord, he believed Yahweh, and he, Yahweh, credited it to him as righteousness. So this is the foundational verse that Paul uses in, in Romans to explain that salvation is by grace through faith, that he gets saved and he gets, uh, he gets his righteousness because he believed in God. And it's the same example that James uses to illustrate that if you have accepted Jesus, if you have um, received God by faith, that it's going to be manifested, that the proof of your faith is going to be manifested in your works. Not that your works 
get you the salvation, but that proves it. And so Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he believed God about the descendants. And then God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And for some reason, apparently, it was hard for, harder for Abraham to believe that part than the part about having descendants. And so um, Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? How will I know that I can do it? And, and apparently it's not a, a disrespectful question. It's a legitimate question for Abram to ask because God doesn't rebuke him. And so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And so remember, we just learned from Psalm 50 that everything in the earth belongs to God. But he tells Abram to bring these things to him. And Abram brought all these to him, and he cut them in two. And he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So he's got these, uh, the birds are dead on both sides, one bird on each side. But the other larger animals, he's actually killed them, sacrificed them, and then cut the bodies in half so that there's a, a left half, a front quarter and a side quarter, a rear quarter, hind quarter of one and then the other front quarter and hind quarter of that other of the same animal on the other side. So the animal is ripped in half. And this is a clear way of, uh, in that day, of, of making an arrangement. This is how you make a promise. You basically say, what I'm doing to these animals can be done to me if I fail to keep my end of the covenant. So it's cutting a covenant is, is, is um, visually, with an object lesson, with an illustration, it's, it's way, way more powerful than say, cross my heart, hope to die. It's look at these dead animals cut in two. That's me if I break my covenant. <clears throat> and then there's a little part about the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So he protected them, waiting for God to do something. And then as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. So Abram um, is, is in a deep sleep now, and he's going to see a vision. He's going to see what God does. <clears throat> and then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So God is making prediction that his descendants will be in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. So that's kind of cool. And then he says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions, which is true, right? The Israelites plundered Egypt because the Egyptians gave them everything when they left. But then he says, But you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And so God is promising Abraham the promised land, but he says it's going to be delayed because I'm not going to purge the land until the Amorite's sin is so great that it deserves it. So God is always just in what he does when he judges the nations. But then the rest of the story, going on to the part here, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, and Abram's in this deep sleep, then a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces of the animals. So God's presence manifested by this fire pot and a blazing torch 
um, appears and it walks, it moves between the pieces. But notice that Abram is not included in the passage. Only God goes through the halves of the animal. And the Bible tells us that on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. On that day, the Lord cut a covenant. The animals were cut in half, and God cuts a covenant. And he said to you and your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And so God makes a promise, and he makes it all upon himself. That if it doesn't come true, if this covenant never happens, I'm the one who will be torn asunder. I'm the one who will be cut in two. And so God made a promise. So back in Psalm 50, when the psalmist, when God says, gather to me this consecrated people, these people that are set apart, they cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. God has made a relationship with these people and he's cut a covenant. And so God says, if anything goes wrong in my promise, I myself, I swear by myself, Hebrews says that he swore by, there's no one greater. Who can God swear by other than himself? Because you can't, you and I could swear by God, but God swears by himself. And he swore by himself. And he said, I will rip myself and I will disintegrate if I ever break my promise with you. But how can God do that? How can God just forgive Abram for his sins? How can God forgive you and I for our sins? somebody's got to pay because somehow if he can just let us all through and he can keep his promise with us, um, how can we be there? How can we be accepted unless God's holiness is also satisfied? If God just forgave us because he's a great, nice guy and he says, oh, the sins aren't really sins, they don't matter, then he would be violating his very self. He would be making himself not holy. He would be party to evil. And so what God does is he sends the Lord Jesus and Jesus lives a perfect life on this earth and, and he, he fulfills all of God's righteousness. He actively obeys all of God's commands and does whatever God tells him to do and never once ever throws God's law behind him or ever hates God's law. He never fails to obey the law to not steal and to not commit adultery and to not forgive or uh, to not love um, God as he should with all of his heart and mind and soul. And so Jesus actively obeys God and does all things. And then he passively obeys God and he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he dies on the cross. He offers his body on the cross for us. He actually becomes like that animal that was cut in half. He was left over to destruction for our sake. Look how Jesus describes it himself. Can you imagine being there on, uh, in Luke 22 in the Last Supper and Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. What Jesus did is he, he, he did the visual aid, the visual action of taking this loaf of bread and he ripped a piece off of it. And then he gave it to them and he said, this is my body given for you. I, I don't know how we could not see that, that just as the animals were torn in two and God promised by going between the parts that he would fulfill, 
Jesus says, now's the day. And he pulls himself apart. He rips the bread and says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus does fulfill the covenant by becoming wickedness, by becoming sin for us. He, he never did any wickedness, but all of our sins is put on his account and he pays the price. And so the, the covenant that is fulfilled is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one who is broken so that you and I can be receiving his righteousness and still be accepted by God and still God doesn't lose his righteousness. God is still perfectly holy because all of our sins are paid by the innocent one the Lord Jesus. Oh, how much he loves us to do that and to take our penalty for us. But to the wicked, back to Psalm 50, but the wicked God says, what right of you to recite my laws and take my covenant on your lips? What right of you to say, I believe in Jesus when we hate his law? Look, he says, you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you. You don't, you don't care what I think. You don't care what I say. You just throw them behind you. You throw in your lots with thieves. You throw in your lot with adulterers. And then look at what he, the text says as farther down. It says, when you did these things and kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. And Jesus, Jesus never was exactly like that. Right? Jesus was perfect and he never sinned. He says, but now I arraign you and I set my accusations before you and consider this wicked person, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces. Do you see the options? The choices are we either believe Jesus by faith and recognize that he was torn in half. <clears throat> he was the bread that was broken. His body was broken for us. He was the the two halves of the animal whose covenant was cut, through whom the covenant was cut. <clears throat> he says, consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue. The choices are, are really one of two choices. Either we accept that Jesus was torn in half for us, or we will be torn. You see, for those of us who believe in Jesus, we recognize that he was torn in half so that we would not have to be. But if we refuse his gift of salvation, then we can only expect that same kind of judgment. Well, I hope that that's not true for you. I hope that you're willing to accept your need. Remember, God doesn't need us. We need him. <clears throat> and God doesn't... Um, want us to be lost. He wants us to accept Jesus and to be forgiven for our sins. And so Psalm 50, the mighty one summons. And to his own people, he reminds us that he does not need us. And to the wicked, he reminds us that we need God. And he tells us to thank God and keep our vows and call him for help. When we need help, that's who we're supposed to call. So some questions then for how we would apply this today. First question, to whom am I thankful? How can I tell whether or not I'm in the right relationship with God? And the first, a good diagnostic question is, to whom am I thankful? What is it that really makes me glad? What is it that um, gives me a grateful heart? <clears throat> am I glad that the weather's nice? Am I glad that the uh, politicians did what I wanted them to do? 
Am I glad that the, uh, you know, the stock market is going up or is that what I'm thankful for? And is that to whom I'm thankful? If I'm not thankful to God, then I betray that my heart does not love him. And that's why it's so important. He says, this is what I need you to do. My people, or if you're wicked, you got to offer me thank offerings. You need to be thankful to me, grateful for what I have done. And we have so much to be grateful for, right? Because Jesus did what he did. He died for me. He gave his life so that I would not have to die that way. And then the next question is, what am I doing here? When, I, when I'm living my life and I'm supposed to do things and God prompts me to love somebody in a certain way or to do an act of kindness, am I going to fulfill my vows or am I just going to just be lazy? And so we're supposed to thank God and fulfill our vows. And then where do we go when we're in trouble? Perhaps this is an even bigger test of who our God is. When life is really hard for you, do you go to the bottle to get some kind of comfort? Do you go to the bag of potato chips to get comfort? Do you call a friend and say, oh, my life is so awful? No. Or do we go to God? You see, where we go when we're in trouble reveals who our God is. And so these questions are really important. No wonder that Psalm 50 says, sacrifice thank offerings to me. Fulfill your vows. Do what you said you're going to do. Where are you going? What are you doing here? You're supposed to do things for God that he wants you to do. God has saved us. It's not that we do these fulfilled vows in order for him to, to, um, to bless us or accept us. We already have established that. We're, we're saved already. And Ephesians 2 says we're saved by grace through faith, not of works as any man shall boast, but we're saved to do good works that he has ordained for us. And so now that I'm in Jesus, now that I have his Holy Spirit and I've been forgiven, I have the ability to please God just by making any efforts because it's not with sin anymore. And so I can fulfill my vows. I can do things for God. It doesn't earn me favor. I'm already a child of God. But it gives me the privilege of glorifying God. So if I'm, should, I'm supposed to be grateful and offer my voluntary thank offerings to God. And to fulfill my vows. To tell him to do what I'm supposed to do. And when I'm in trouble, verse 15, and call on me in the day of trouble. And then I'll deliver you, and it will honor me. I, God gets glory out of delivering us from our troubles. It's why he loves us to call on him. There's no trouble too small that doesn't please God when we call on him for help. Well, I hope that makes sense for you today. Uh, there's so many great ideas. There's so many good points in the Psalm 50. The magnitude of the Holy One, the Mighty One of God, El Elohim Yahweh. He's the one who summons the earth. And to his people, he reminds them, I don't need you to be getting me stuff. I'm the one who's, I'm not dissipated. I'm not diminished when I give to you. And you don't add to me when you try to give to me. You're just giving me glory that I've already got. And so I just want you to know that I don't need you. But to the wicked, you need me. You need me. Who's going to be there in your day of trouble? Who's going to rescue you if you have turned your back on me? If you won't accept the death of my son, I gave everything for you. I gave Jesus for you. Jesus gave his life for you. If you reject that, if you throw that behind you, you, you I, there's nothing else God can do. He has given you everything, and you need to accept him. You need to receive that gift. We need God. We can't do it by ourselves. 
If it was just a religion of works, I could tell you, hey, go out and fulfill your vows, fulfill your vows, do more offerings, do more offerings. And if you're good enough, then God will please you. We go, oh, rah, 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 will work. No, the thank offerings come because the guilt offering has already been made. The thank offerings are voluntary because the sin problem has already been atoned for. And the fulfilling of vows is the good works that we can do now that we're empowered by God's grace. And then we call on God when we're in help. The New, the New Testament way of saying this very same thing is, is reflected in Hebrews chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, through this great sacrifice of love that Jesus has given us, our great high priest, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, a thank offering, a praise offering, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. May you and I always proclaim the name of Jesus. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Amen. May we be the ones who offer thank offerings, who fulfill our vows and do good to other believers and other people on our planet and on earth. And, and finally, when we're in trouble, that we would call for God and give him the sacrifice of praise that he deserves. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your graciousness to us. Thank you for the way that you rescue us from all things of ourselves, our own sin nature, our own selfishness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for breaking the bread, for, for allowing your body to be broken, for, for being the one through whom the covenant was cut so that the curtain between the most holy place and the holy place could be torn in two and that you could fulfill all righteousness and that God can love me and accept me without in any way diminishing his holiness. Thank you, God, for giving to us. Forgive us for the times that we think that you need us. Forgive us for the times that we think that we don't need you. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If you haven't already, we invite you to check out our midweek podcast, which discusses each sermon using the BFG discussion questions. These episodes drop every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Last week, Trish Torres joined us to talk about Pastor John's sermon on Jonah and the Huge Fish. Also, our children's video lessons are back this week. We are talking about what it meant when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God. As always, Keep your eyes on Jesus and have a great week.